0: Listen and hear the word of the Lord to us from Mark 8. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and having having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha.
1: Morning. A man I know, I'll call him John, grew up in a Christian home, graduated from college got a job that really fit. He liked his job. He enjoys his church. He's involved in his church. He goes to a Bible study. He's got a wife and family that he loves and delights in. But in his 30s, he began to have an increasing sense of restlessness and emptiness that most of the time he avoids thinking about. He's too busy, really, to think about it a lot. But every once in a while... When he has time to be alone, that ache creeps in. A woman, I know, I'll call her Jane, just wanted to be a mom. She found a good husband who really loves her well. She has four kids, and as you can imagine, they're fairly young. She keeps busy. (laughs) She does work part-time to help make ends meet. But overall, her schedule works pretty well. She's pretty happy being a soccer mom and the busyness of all that. And she loves Jesus. She really loves Jesus. But she too feels a deep dissatisfaction in her soul that she can't shake. She's beginning to wonder if she's depressed, whether she needs to go see a therapist, go on medication, see her doctor, because there's this ache that's always there. Someone else I know, I'll call him Bill. Long-time Christian, worked hard at his job for many years, did a great job with that, but finally reached retirement age, retired, and he finds himself in retirement driven to keep busy all the time. Because if he ever slows down, he finds that there's something in him that makes him wonder who he really is now. His identity had been in his job and now he doesn't really know who he is. Does his life matter anymore? Every once in a while he has those thoughts, but he quickly dismisses them because he doesn't know what to do with those thoughts. And so he quickly finds something else to do. In fact, he's busier now than he was when he was working. These are just some random examples of people like you and me. People who know the Lord, love the Lord, and know, know, here, in our heads that He is our life. But deep down, if we ever take time to look into our souls, which, by the way, we're pretty good at avoiding. (laughs) We live in a culture that says what makes you worthwhile is your busyness, your efficiency, what you produce. And so we're pretty good at buying into that and keeping really busy. But If we ever have time to ourselves, we feel an ache, a loneliness, a dissatisfaction that won't go away. Our theology says we should be satisfied in Jesus, right? Jesus should be enough for us. Your grace is enough, we've just sung. That's really all I need. And we know that theologically, but what does that really look like for us? Really? In our passage today, Jesus feeds the 4,000. It's a story about how Jesus met their need for hunger, but it's meant to cause us look to look deeper, I think, at the deeper hunger in our hearts and to ask ourselves, am I really learning to be satisfied in Jesus? Am I really learning to feed upon Him as the bread of life? Heavenly Father, as we... Come to this passage that's a beautiful portrait of your loving care and your provision and your compassion. How you are the bread of life. Lord, may we learn to feed upon you, to find satisfaction in you, truly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at this story together. If you... Listen carefully when Cynthia read it. I think you would probably have this sense of deja vu. (laughs) This sounds really familiar. (laughs) You see, the feeding of the 5,000 was just a couple chapters ago. So why did Mark include this event? Not all the gospel writers did. What, What does it add to the story? Why the feeding of the 4,000 along with the feeding of the 5,000? Well, the shortest answer is that this feeding occur, occurs in Gentile lands. The other one was clearly over by Tabga on the Sea of Galilee, which is Jewish territory. It was done for Jews. So in the big picture, Jesus is teaching his disciples that he is the bread of life, not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, and we know that in their prejudices, in in their narrow perspective, that was really hard for the disciples to get. So that's the big picture, that Jesus is teaching his disciples that the same resources, the bread of life, who he is, is available not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. And praise God for that, because most of us here are Gentiles. (laughs) That the bread of life is available to people like us if we're willing to surrender our lives to Him. But I think there's much more to this story as well. We'll come back to that. But I, I want to walk us through this story and just think through, what is it that Jesus is trying to teach to the disciples and ultimately to teach us? Let me read those first three verses again. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Again, it sounds very familiar. <laughs> Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. That word for compassion I highlighted when we went through the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. That word splankna, splanknizomai. What a great, great Greek word. Splankna, it's guts. That's really what it means. Jesus had a gut felt concern for these people, these Gentiles who had had nothing to eat. And as they're sitting there and they're out of food, Jesus looks at them. And I think his compassion is not just for their physical hunger, though it includes that. But his compassion is for their spiritual hunger. And think about it. These Gentiles had come and were sitting under Jesus' teaching and weren't even thinking about food. It doesn't say that they were concerned about it. But Jesus was because he was concerned for their needs. They'd sat there for three days listening to him. That's amazing to me. It's it's a sign of incredible spiritual hunger. Where did these people get that spiritual hunger? Well, I highlighted last week. Remember, back in chapter five, when Jesus cast the demons, the whole legion of demons out of the Gerasene demoniac, it was in this area in the Decapolis on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And remember how all the people of the area came to him and said, Leave! We don't want you around here. It's too terrifying. The power of God's visible and we don't like it. (laughs) And they asked him to leave. They kicked him out of the area. And the garrison demoniac, remember, said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want to hang out with these people anymore. (laughs) They've never liked me anyway. And Jesus said, No, go back and tell them. What great things God has done for you and how merciful God has been. And so now for this period of time, the garrison demoniac has been evangelizing his own country. Those who hated him, he now went to them and said, Jesus is amazing. Look what he's done. He's incredible. (laughs) He's changed my life. He's healed me. He set me free. He shared what God has done in his life. And now when he shows up, what happens? The crowds come. Their hearts have been spiritually prepared. They have a spiritual hunger because they've rubbed shoulders with someone whose life has been changed by Jesus. That's a great picture, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That we ought to be rubbing shoulders with those in the world to help create a spiritual hunger. So they'll be thirsty and ready when the time is right to share the truth with them so that they can have their hunger satisfied. These people are so spiritually hungry, they're ready to sit for three days and hear Jesus teach. So Jesus looks at them and he feels this gut-wrenching compassion. And he says to his disciples, now in the feeding of the 5,000, they came to him and they said, Jesus, send them away. We're hungry. You know, get rid of these people into the surrounding villages. But now Jesus initiates and he says, I feel a deep concern for these people. I don't want to send them away hungry. I want to really satisfy them. So he just lays it out there. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's fishing, right? He's fishing for them to remember what he did with the 5,000. <laughs> to think about who he is. To, to realize he has what it takes to meet the needs of a thirsty heart. And you'd think the disciples would at least kind of go, gee, this feels a little familiar here. But I'm astounded by their response. His the disciples answered him, and literally what they say is, where will anybody be able to find any food in such a desolate place? How could these people ever be satisfied? Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I go, man, these guys are dense. (laughs) It wasn't very long ago he fed the 5,000. Very similar situation. And yet here they are, they're going, gee, I can't come up with a single idea on how to feed these people. It strikes me as strange that they're missing it by that much. How hard can their hearts be that they can't put two and two together? Well, let me just kind of dialogue with you a bit about that. Why why were they missing it here? Why so dense? Well, notice they really are in a wilderness here. They are not near any town. The feeding of the 5,000, they were near towns, and that's why the disciples said, hey, you know, send them out. They can buy food in the surrounding villages. But here, there are no surrounding villages, and so they're in a wilderness. And in that wilderness... Their faith is being stretched in a new way. They can't imagine how God could work in this situation. Notice how often that happens to us. God does great things for us. He takes care of us. He's provided for us. He's seen us through some difficult times. And we get to a new situation and we go, Oh no! Yeah, God did it there, but He can't do it here. This is different. Don't we all do that? Our faith gets stretched when we're in a wilderness, in a new place, and we think, he helped me there, but I don't think he can help me here. It's part of God working to stretch our faith as he is for the disciples here. And notice, too, that they are in Gentile territory. I think the disciples were so ethnocentric they they could only see that the jews and only the jews could be the chosen people that they could perhaps envision jesus feeding 5000 jews but they couldn't even fathom that jesus would be bread for the world that he would be bread for the gentiles that he would feed them in the same way that he fed the jewish people especially because it's such a picture of jesus creating the people of God back in Exodus and taking them into the wilderness and feeding them through the manna, providing for them. That was how Jesus formed the people of God, how God worked way back in the Old Testament. And that's understandable that Jesus would be forming the people of God in the New Testament. But, but Gentiles? I just don't think that the disciples have any sense that Jesus would be doing that for a Gentile population. He might heal one or two. We've already seen him do that in the book of Mark. But how could the Gentiles really be considered part of God's chosen people? So part of the message is don't exclude anyone from my grace, God says. Don't exclude anyone from my grace. It's a lesson we all need to learn. We all have blind spots right and and we have people that we exclude at times and we just can't believe that god could work in their life one last lesson from the blindness of the gen, uh, of these disciples could be this that it is isn't until later in chapter 8 that the disciples finally declare verbally who jesus is who do you say i am he says and peter says you are the messiah you are the christ And it's at that point, I think, their eyes begin to be opened. It's still a slow process. But see, our eyes, spiritual eyes, are only opened when we surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior. True insight comes from being in right relationship to Jesus. You just can't see spiritual truth unless you're submitted to him. Truth only comes through a heart that's submitted to him. Otherwise, it never reaches the head, real spiritual truth. So in verse 5, he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? The exact question he asked back in the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I hope the disciples are starting to just get it here. Wait a minute, I've heard him ask that before. How many loaves do you have? (laughs) Start counting. Look again at the fact that you don't have enough to make this work. Look at your own inadequate resources. Doesn't Jesus love to do that? To have us look at our own inadequacy and then say, but submit to me, follow me, obey me, and I will provide everything you need. So he teaches us to count the loaves and see how much we need him every minute. And then he feeds them. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And the word for served is to set before. He says, take these and set them before the people. Set them before the people. And they ate and were satisfied that's a good translation i know some of your translations are different but they ate and were satisfied and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces 4000 were there and he sent them away so jesus feeds the 4000 here and the disciples pick up seven large baskets of leftovers Remember back in the feeding of the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. But they were it was a different word for basket that's used. It was a smaller, more personal basket that people tended to carry their things in. This word here is for large baskets. It's actually the word used to describe the basket that Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, was let down over the wall of Damascus when he ran for his life. These are big baskets. Big baskets. These seven large baskets they collected. So why seven? You know, there's there's significance to the number. Numbers are sometimes significant in Scripture, not always. But here's what Bargell Pixner, a, a Jewish commentator, says: as the number twelve in the first feeding pointed to the twelve tribes of Israel. So now the number seven was to indicate the seven heathen peoples. Just remember in your Old Testament history, when the people in Joshua came into the land and they conquered the land, they describes how they conquered the seven nations, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, etc., the seven nations that were in the land, and they were told to destroy them completely. The representative of the Gentile world. Paul describes that in one of his speeches in Acts chapter thirteen, verse nineteen. Where let me read it to you. Acts thirteen nineteen, where he's talking, to, in Antioch Pisidian, and he says, "For a period of about forty years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance." All of which took about 450 years. So seven baskets, according to Pixner, and it makes sense to me, represent the Gentile world. Which, when they came into the land, what were they told to do? Kill them all. Kill them all. Very interesting what Jesus is doing here. What's he doing in his perspective of what he's trying to teach the disciples about the Gentile world? To see them as receiving the very bread of life. That they too can be included in the kingdom of God. Again, this is mind-blowing, I think, to the disciples. This is amazing. The gospel is for anyone who will believe. But the disciples can't fathom that because they don't have the imagination to see what God is doing. They're so focused on what they can see. And feel and touch, and what they've been taught, they can't imagine that God would actually care for the Gentiles. Whom do we naturally exclude in our own thinking, in our own minds? We all have kind of our lists, don't we? That we think, well, they're not really capable of being part of the kingdom of God. Who's on your list? Gays? Prostitutes? child molesters, Democrats, oops, (laughs) Republicans. (laughs) Jesus' plan was to have then to give the bread of life to them, to have them receive it and then set it before the nations, set it before the Gentiles. This is exactly what the apostles did with their lives, right? They took the truth of the gospel and they, Set it before the people to receive, and they had to make the choice. But what an object lesson for the disciples. I'm sure they thought about it later. They weren't getting it now, but they had such blind spots and a cultural bias bias that blinds them to what God is really doing. We were talking this week, some of us, and talking about the missionary world and how missionaries have gone into different cultures and seeing the way that they function, seen the way that they live, that the way they do things. And many missionaries have come in and said, boy, that is a stupid way to do things. We know how to do things better. And so they've tried to westernize people from different tribes, different nations, because we think their way is bad. You see, I think that's bl- a blind spot. Sure, there's immorality that you need to change. God needs to change. But in terms of how to even sing and worship and dress and all these things are ways part of the culture. Do we have open eyes or do we have blind spots that think people need to do it our way? I was in Pakistan on a missionary trip and we were there and we were in a worship service and it was wonderful the the way they were singing and leading in worship, I couldn't understand the words, obviously, but they were banging together pieces of metal. They had varied, various percussion instruments that were homemade, and, it was, and they were so excited singing and praising to God. It was so different than anything I'd experienced, and yet clearly God was here. They were singing psalms, and they would call out a, the number of a psalm, and they all knew the words, and they would sing the psalms. It's a beautiful thing. Although I must confess, it was a little strange when they started singing Psalm 46, and, and the tune was, Oh, My Darling Clementine. <laughs> I don't know. I would have had a hard time to worship if I had even understood the words, I think. but All these cultural differences. So what are some lessons? I just want to draw it together for us. What are some lessons we can see out of this amazing story? Well, number one, Jesus has compassion on the needy. We need to just realize that. He has a heart especially for the poor, for the needy, for the hungry, and especially for the spiritually hungry. And they are all around us. We somehow think, oh no, this person that I know, that I work with, that I spend time with, my neighbor, whatever... You know, I don't know how to break through their shell. They seem pretty content. How in the world am I ever going to get Christ into their lives? And gee, that's so tough. But you know, if you just start asking questions, you'll find out everyone is spiritually hungry. We are spiritual beings. I was talking to a lady recently and she was telling us about her life. And, and I just asked her, I said, well, what's? do you have any kind of a spiritual background or spiritual belief? You know, that's a great question because everybody's spiritual. Everybody thinks about spiritual things to some degree. I said, you know, what's your spiritual background or your spiritual belief? She said, I'm a pagan. So what does that mean? Tell me about that. And she was explaining, well, I worship nature. That's where I feel close to God. She had a spiritual hunger that she was trying to fill with nature, which is satisfying for a while, but it never satisfies in the long run. But I I just encourage you to not be intimidated by people who appear to have their lives together. Every person you meet is spiritually hungry. Number two lesson. Jesus is the bread of life. He's what every human hungers for. We were created to feed on him. We each have an emptiness in our souls that, as Blaise Pascal said, that God-shaped vacuum in our souls that is there. The world is trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum, fill their souls with all kinds of things, with pleasure, alcohol, drugs, luxury, sex, with money, with things, with religion of our own making like paganism. So now I worship the trees. We try to fill our hearts as human beings with relationships, somebody that will love me, somebody that will care for me, like I long to be loved, like The the young girls, Jeannie and I, were working with a ministry in Oregon that was um, giving, we, we were helping young teens who were pregnant. We were giving pregnancy tests and trying to help them move towards how to deal with this and maybe move towards adoption. We were involved with this ministry, and some of the girls who came were 15, 16, and they had been trying to get pregnant because they thought, at least if I get pregnant, then I'll have someone to love me. Because no one else does. Those of you who have been parents know how foolish that is. (laughs) Kids, by and large, are takers, right? We pour into them. But people are thirsty. They're hungry. They're trying to fill their lives with whatever they can find, but they can't feed their soul. Now, as Christians, we know better, right? We would never fall into all those traps that the world around us does. Truth be told, we all struggle with finding life in other things besides God. None of us depends on him for life. None of us feeds on the bread of life fully. Hopefully we're growing in that, but truth is that's part of our hearts too. We try to stuff uh, the hole in our lives, the vacuum in our lives with other things. So what does it mean to truly feed on Jesus as the bread of life? Well, let me just give a couple of thoughts there. You know, if you're eating fast food all the time, it tastes good, right? It's salty, it's fatty, it, it, it delights the taste buds. It's really bad for you, though, and in the long run, it really kills you in the long run. Well, how are you going to learn to eat a healthy diet? Well, if you're eating all that fast food, then you try to eat a healthy diet, what happens? You go, Ugh, I don't really like green beans. Give me French fries. How do you begin to change that? Well, you have to acquire a taste over time. If you go on a diet, if you're trying to change your pattern of eating, what do you do? You've got to fast from the bad stuff and begin eating the good stuff so that after a while you begin to go, you know, this isn't so bad. And after a while, the other stuff doesn't taste good to you anymore. That's true spiritually as well, brothers and sisters. I think so many Christians, they they go, yeah, I know I'm supposed to spend time with the Lord and I'm supposed to find life in him. And you know, he's supposed to taste good, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Psalm 34, verse eight. So I've tasted, you know, I sit down, I'm going to commit myself to have my quiet time. And a week later, it's like, oh, I miss. Oh, well, you know, and then we're not we're, we quit spending time with the Lord. We haven't given ourselves time to acquire a taste for the Lord and really taste and see that the Lord is good. How do we change our taste? How do we learn to feed on the bread of life? It really does take a commitment of the will. You've got to sit at the table and put to work the spiritual disciplines where you begin to change your taste buds, so to speak, spiritual taste buds. But you do have to fast from the bad stuff and what you're trying to stuff your life with. Think about the best meal you've ever had or certainly one of the best meals. My guess is you enjoyed it partly because you were really hungry. (laughs) If you were completely full, you just stuffed yourself and then you had this fabulous gourmet meal set before you. My guess is you wouldn't really like it all that much because you didn't feel hungry we've got to fast from the fast food we've got to quit eating that and we've got to say okay lord i'm going to choose to put you first and over time you acquire a taste and god will help with that because god is really good at over time breaking our dependence on the things we stuff our lives with We may lose our job, we may lose a friendship, we may have poor health, whatever. Those things are a gift from God to wean us of the things we depend on other than Him so that we can taste and see that the Lord is really good. So we have to choose to spend time with Him, to sit at the table and pray and read and serve, use our spiritual gifts, obey Him, be in fellowship with other believers, learn a discipline of being thankful in all things, etc., These things are all part of really tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, being satisfied in him. Lesson three from this passage. Jesus wants us to feed others. He gave to the disciples so they could set before others. Jesus gives us life so it can flow through us to others, so we can be broken bread for the world. Like the disciples, Jesus gives us an abundance so that we... Can share that with others and give it away and give our lives away. Not be fools like the man that Jesus confronted or talked about who, who kept getting more and more grain. So he just built, built bigger and bigger barns. He was just acquiring for himself. You know what I think one of the greatest signs of a lost and corrupt society are? One of the greatest signs of a lost and corrupt society. Storage units. We have too much stuff, so we pay to stuff it in a new place just to hang on to it, like the man who built bigger barns. Jesus gives us an abundance, not to hoard, but to give away, but to bless others, but to serve, give our lives away. And the final lesson, we've already highlighted it, Jesus is bread not just for us, but for the world. Verse 3, it's, uh, Jesus says, They came from afar. They came from all over. A far distance they've come. Refugees have come from a far distance to our very place. Are we reaching out to those he's bringing to us? Are you being moved maybe to sign up for one of the short-term teams so you can learn to be bred for the world, to take the gospel elsewhere? People are spiritually hungry, and only Jesus can satisfy Now it's true, life on earth will always have an ache, no matter how much we depend on him. There will always be a groaning because we're not there yet. We're not seeing him face to face. But my challenge to me and to you this morning is, are you really learning to feed on the bread of life? And as you feed on the bread of life, are you learning to give that away, pass on what he gives to you, to others? You've heard the analogy, but I think it's a good one, of, In Israel, how the Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. Lowest spot on the face of the earth. 1,400 feet below sea level. Water flows into it, but nothing flows out. It's called the Dead Sea for a reason because there's only 13 species of bacteria that can dwell in it. Nothing else, no fish, nothing. It's dead. Why is it dead? Because... Things only flow in, nothing flows out. Too many Christians are like that. We take in, but we don't give out. Or are we rivers of living water, where the water flows into us, and then out to bring life to the world? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the bread of life. You've made yourself available for us to find satisfaction In you, We confess, Lord, there's too many other things we depend on other than you, but thank you that you are committed to wean us of those things. May we not be the disciples where we're so dense we don't get it, but may we be disciples whose hearts are open, our eyes are open, to see your hand at work and to hold on to it and to know you as our bread of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.